you guys liked that video, didn't you? Jared, good job. And Kami and, and Evan. Um, and what I like about that video, uh, it's the uh, 20th anniversary of the movie that, you know, that video is loosely based on. I just watched it with my kids and my wife a, a couple of weeks ago. And it's always, I, I always enjoy it. But I loved that part where uh, Kami said, Jesus, I know him. In fact, I'm a little embarrassed because I'm kind of a softie, but I teared up just a, a little bit. Um, but really, because that's the heart of what we do around here. It's about knowing him, about knowing Jesus. And so if you're joining us for the first time or the first time in a while, our heart is that uh, you would know him on a deeper level. And today we're in a series in the book of Isaiah that's our Advent series that's leading us up to Christmas, and we're excited when we celebrate Advent, really what we're celebrating is the fact that Jesus came 2,000 years ago. God came in the flesh to this planet, and he made a way for us to have relationship with him. But we're also, Advent is this longing expectation because we know um, he's coming again, and we want to see him again face to face. And so it's a season of expectation of when he would, when he will come again. And so today I want to start by just reading a couple verses out of a famous passage around Advent. And it's out of Isaiah 9, and it says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. How many of you know a song, famous one, classical, that has this in it, right? Yeah, some of you, others of you are like, what? Handles Messiah. You've heard it, I'm sure. Uh, for unto us, anyway, I won't sing it. But my son, when he was little, uh, his his grandma actually did. She uh, she sang in the choir at for Handel's Messiah here locally, and so we took him down to go see it, and he loved it. So he would come home, and he would set up his beanie boos, and be the orchestra conductor, and do Handel's Messiah on on beanie boos. So for to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Famous prophecy about the birth of Jesus written 700 years before his birth. In fact, one of the things that ties into this, our theme today in Advent is peace. It's peace, experiencing the peace of God. And uh, in Luke, uh, right at the beginning of, as the angels announced the birth of Jesus and the choir of angels appears, here's what they're singing, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Wonderful counsel, prince of peace. But if I could just pause and make a quick observation, um, peace isn't exactly the state of the world we live in, is it? Um, sometimes when I can't sleep at night, I put on ancient history and <laughs> so that I can sleep. And that usually works, except then sometimes it, you know, it hits the, a section that I'm like studying in the Bible, and then I just keep myself awake for two extra hours because it's so interesting. 
Uh, but the thing that just constantly sticks out to me, wars, war, war, war. I mean, it's just like, are you is there ever peace? Wars, wars, wars. In fact, I was curious. I'm like, I wonder, I know like there's all this conflict and the news headlines and, and whatever and all this talk and discussion and talk and rumors of World War III, all this stuff rolling around, right? But I'm like, I wonder how many actual wars there have been like, how many people have died in, in, just in my lifetime? And so I was doing a quick search, and actually I, I didn't find that. But what I did find was fascinating. I found a website, a war memorial website, that listed all of the conflicts um, since 1900 with the number of casualties. And I'm like, oh, this will be interesting. And, and then um, I was absolutely shocked. I had no idea. Because I scrolled through page after page, <laughs> just going down and down. In fact, I just want to illustrate this for you because it was really dramatic for me. I created a little uh, spreadsheet to illustrate this. So check, check out this little uh, screenshot here of these wars. So you, Eastern Ukraine war, uh, this isn't even up to date, right? All these wars, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. An Indonesia government, Sierra Leone civil war, didn't, you know, Iraq versus Kurdistan, first Gulf War, I've heard of that one, remember that one. Uh, Nicaragua government, um, all these wars, right? Cambodian, couple million, 150,000, that's like our valley, everybody in our valley being wiped out. Um, Tunisian War of Independence, scrolling, scrolling, Greece, there's a million, 200. Um, World War II, of course, we've all heard about that one. But as you go, scrolls, we're still scrolling, still scrolling. This is just since 1900, still scrolling. There's 800,000. Keiko Revolt, 100,000, never even heard of that. Russia, Tukistan, look at all those people. The Zulu Rebellion, and, and finally, we come to the end of that. Is that shocking for anybody else? 266 named conflicts. And when I did some research, um, people that were killed in conflicts just in the 20th century that were killed or died by human decision because of war, approximately 231 million people, according to the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. That's crazy. Yeah, I don't think... Peace is exactly the state of the world we're in. Now, if you're a Christian, this actually shouldn't surprise you. Now, we sing songs that feel all warm and cozy at Christmas time about peace on earth, you know. But if you're a Christian, actually, you should remember some of the words that Jesus said. Like where he said in Luke, hey, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? Uh, no, but actually, I tell you division. In other words, from this point on, there's going to be a divisive thing. And even within families, he says, it's going to be divisive where people choose, I'm going to follow Jesus, and others choose, others say no. And in fact, at this point in history, right now, millions of people in the Middle East and Southeast Asia, uh, when they embrace Jesus, they are in risk of actually being not just excommunicated, but, but likely killed by their family members for embracing Jesus. So this is a reality in our world today. But actually, Jesus, do you remember the Olivet Discourse where, where um, Jesus' disciples ask him about the events that will lead up to the end of the age? 
When the Son of Man comes, they didn't all understand that yet because Jesus was still there walking the planet with him. But he talks about when he will come. And they're asking him, and while well, Jesus says, well, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. But this isn't yet the end. There's a, there's a great cataclysm to come before the end, but in the meantime, there'll be wars and rumors of wars. It's kind of the state of history. And boy, was he right, if you've ever listened to history. And just from that spreadsheet that, that, that I just showed you, wars and rumors of wars, and of course, what are we seeing today? Um, I mean, unless you like had your head under a rock, which some of you do, and it's actually probably a more peaceful way to live. I get kind of spun out on it all sometimes, you know, going, oh, what's going to happen, you know? But you have conflict all over the world. Right now, of course, the big thing flying up, uh, flaring up in the, in the Middle East with Israel having to fight back against Hamas, right? But did you notice, like, how Ukraine, we just sort of faded into the back? That's still going. It's still ramped up everywhere. We have the largest concentration of U.S. naval power ever in the Mediterranean Gulf right now. I mean, there's all, all these wars and rumors. It's just the state of our world. And see, when we sing about peace on earth, I think at, at Jesus' time, when the angels announced peace on earth, when we read a, a, a passage in Isaiah of the, the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. They had an expectation at Jesus, in the culture, at Jesus' first arrival, because of all these prophecies that, that had been given about Messiah, that there would be, that he would bring peace, but it would be a peace based on strength, on dominance, and, and, and we saw last week or a couple weeks ago this passage that Isaiah prophesies there will be a day when they beat their plowshares into gardening tools, when the lion lays down with the lamb, this beautiful picture of peace on earth, of shalom, of things being made right the way God originally intended them to be. And they believed that the Messiah, when he came in, he would raise up a conquering army. He would wipe everything out. Israel would go back to a superpower status, and there would be peace in our time. For all time. But you remembered something interesting Jesus said as he stood in front of Pilate right before his crucifixion, where Pilate's like, are you a king? And he said, yeah, I'm a king, paraphrasing. But he said, but my, but my kingdom is not now of this world. I don't think Pilate could quite wrap his mind around that. And for so many in Jesus' day, they couldn't wrap their mind around that. Because Jesus was saying, hey, when it comes to peace, there's going to be a time when the kingdom comes, when I return, and there will be peace externally. But in the meantime, he actually promises us something that is our birthright as, as children of God as people in his family. And that's this, that in the midst of a world that lacks peace externally, we can have a peace that surpasses all understanding. A peace that we can't explain. In fact, John, Jesus tells us this in, in John chapter 16. He, he says this to his disciples right before the crucifixion. I've told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you'll have trouble. There's going to be trouble. It's not always going to be easy. In fact, the world is a mess. It's a broken place. 
And my kingdom, when I come, I introduce the kingdom and it's going to grow as people submit their hearts and lives to the God of the universe. And that's exactly what we've seen with now about a third of the population of the world. Um, Not all submit their hearts, but at least a third of the population of the world claim the name of Jesus to worship and serve Jesus. And And I'm telling you, if you studied ancient history, as crazy as things are, I am glad I live in this period of history and not in some of these ancient times. Because we, we have stuff like uh, that comes from the values that Jesus taught us of loving one another, of loving your neighbor as yourself, of the rights of the poor and the afflicted, of human rights. I mean, where does all this stuff come from? From Jesus. But Jesus said, in the midst of a crazy world, I have, come, I have overcome it. You can have peace. Take heart. In fact, he says, uh, he says this, peace I leave you. It's your inheritance if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus. But it has to be embraced. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Now here's what, if I had to guess, and it's funny how when, uh, when, when you think you're, you're going to preach on something and then you're, you're like, God's like, hey, how are you doing with that one? <laughs> you're like, oh, great. I got to go preach on this one. <laughs> it's been a week. <laughs> Most of us, our peace, if we're real honest, isn't because of the crazy state of the world. We, we don't have a lack of peace because of that, really. I mean, some of us, we spin out on it. But then normally it's like, all right, you do that for a week or two, and then you just kind of ignore it and go back to life and stick your head under the sand, you know, and, and go, okay, because what can I do about it anyway, right? Most of the time, the stuff that eats us up is, is the internal stuff, isn't it? It's our financial life a lot of times and how things just, how is this going to work out, God? It's distress in family. It's the stress in work. And I know what I know about this time of year. For some of you, that family di- dynamic, I mean, for some of you, you have a family dynamic where actually you're going to spend a lot of time with some people that don't exactly bring you peace in the next few weeks. <laughs> we got an amen on that one. So some of you are like stressing out about all that already. Or maybe it's work and it's just crazy and it just keeps ramping up and there's stress uh, related to that. And, and you're worried and you have, you're anxious. Or you're worried, how am I going to get through this challenge, this health challenge? How am I going to get through this relationship thing? God, I just don't see a good ending. How's this going to work out? And there's no peace. There's no peace. And so what I wanted to do today is I want to look at a passage, a chunk of scripture in Isaiah, and kind of more of a fun narrative story that we're going to go through. And I've mentioned this story already in in this series. This you're going to see in a moment, historical account. And today what I want to do is I want to read it and I want to share some of the amazing things that, that we found in archaeology that confirms the fact that God really showed up in Isaiah's time and prophesied in advance what would happen and then pulled it off. And this is why this is so important. It's to help us understand that peace, if you, if you want to experience peace, it comes squarely, not from the external, but it comes from really being rooted and grounded in the one we know, the one we can place our trust in. And so our story is going to start in the uh, city of Nineveh. And we have a map here of, of Assyria. Now, 
the Nineveh becomes the capital of, uh, right around the time, a little bit before the time of the story that we're going to read, Nineveh becomes the capital and most populous, it's the most populous city of ancient Assyria. And so Assyria is the big boy on the block at this time in history. Um, they, uh, they, have, they are at the peak of power. They are the superpower of the world, the Assyrian Empire, and they've conquered much of the Middle East. And actually, what's interesting about Nineveh, when I say the word Nineveh, who's the first Bible character you think of first? Yeah, there you go. Uh, so Jonah, you've heard of Nineveh because you've heard of Jonah for many people. But I'm actually going to tell you, you've heard of Nineveh because of this account we're about ready to read today. Otherwise, you probably never would have, never would have heard of it. At least in history, in, in history, we wouldn't have. And so um, Nineveh is the oldest, it's the most populous city in, in, um, in Assyria. And what we see in Scripture timeline-wise, is about 75 years, 80 years before Isaiah, before this account we're going to look at today, before Isaiah's time of ministry, we see God sends a prophet, and you know his name, Jonah. And he sends the prophet to the great city of Nineveh. We see this is a, a massive city. It's, uh, it's really a, a large city. And his message was to repent, to turn away from their sins and turn to God. Turn away from their pride and turn to God because they were about ready to be destroyed. And so this prophet Jonah comes up looking like pretty rough, probably, um, if you've read the account. And they've probably heard, like, this guy got spit up on the beach out of a, uh, out of a large giant fish. And, um, and so he comes rolling up telling them to repent. And they listen. And they repent. And God spares the city. That's a, that's a whole lifetime before this account. Now, here's the cool thing, is ancient historians always like debated, where is the location of Nineveh, and how do we find this? And then in the mid-1800s, they discovered the uh, the city of Nineveh, and they thought they'd discovered it, but they needed some more evidence. And so in the 1840s, Austin H. Laird, we have a picture of him here, he was a British explorer and excavator, and uh, he came and, and started digging at the, at the ancient city of Nineveh, which is in modern-day Iraq and in Mosul. And he started digging down, and they began finding these incredible walls. But more than that, they f- began finding this incredible palace structure. And so you can go to the British Museum and see a bunch of this stuff here today because they brought a lot of these artifacts back to the British Museum, and good thing they do, did because a lot of these archaeology, man, I'm having a hard time talking this morning. A lot of these archaeological sites are being destroyed now by weather and because of uh, um, where it's located in the in the Middle East and different things. So anyway, um, here's where this is. He found these walls, this massive structure. They found the name of Sennacherib, which we, we're going to see in the scripture, and it proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was the site of ancient Nineveh. Exactly. There's still a place known in Arabic that translates to Jonah, the prophet Jonah, in, in ancient Nineveh. And so this is where modern-day Nineveh is. Now we got a little Google Earth map, and I drew some boundaries here um, of modern-day. This is in Mosul. You've heard of Mosul. If you remember um, the war, some of you probably were in Mosul. Thank you for your service. Um, but uh, this was 
Mosul, and this is ancient Nineveh here. And if you see the big P up there, that's where they found a massive palace, the Palace of Sennacherib. And here's a rendering of the artist that traveled with the British explorer Austin Laird. He did an artistic rendering of the splendor of this. It was known Sennacherib, uh, who was the Assyrian king. He moved the capital to Nineveh, and then he began a building campaign that was incredible. And this was known as the Palace Without Rival. In fact, it's the, um, I believe it is the the largest ancient palace ever excavated. It's amazing. They found this place. And they found some incredible things as they began to excavate. And I'm going to tell you a few of those in a minute. But right now, I want to dive into the scripture. In Isaiah 36, 1, here's what it says. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, and from history, we believe this is right about 701 B.C., so 700 years before Jesus Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, all these cities that were fortified with walls, and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish, keep that name in your mind, we're going to talk about that in a minute, to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. The field commander said to them, tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You who say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? So Isaiah's father, who was a one, or uh, excuse me, Hezekiah's father, who Ahaz, who was one of the worst kings in Judah's history, led them into idolatry, sacrificed his own children to the demon idol god Molech. Awful stuff. He had all. all he had also struck up a bargain with the Assyrians that he shouldn't have done. And Hezekiah stopped paying tribute. And so as they're rolling back through Judah to, to take over this rebel, this rebel country at this point, he says, who are you paying attention to? He says this, look, I know you were depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff. They're not, they're not even powerful anymore, which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. You can't trust them. They'll stab you in the back. Such is the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. You can't trust him. And he goes on in verse 8. He says, come make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. He's just mocking him. You guys are so weak. I have rolled through. I have destroyed. At this point, he had destroyed almost every fortified city in, in Judah. The only thing left is the capital, Jerusalem. Here's how the, uh, the king's representatives respond. It's, so, so, so they're up, like at the base of the city gate. Everything's shut up. Ancient cities fortified like that. So they're shouting up to the representatives of the king in Hebrew, the common language. And here's what they say. Then Elkiam, Shebna, and Joah said to the field commander, please speak to your servants in Aramaic since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of all the people on the wall. <laughs> they know the people are going to be terrified. So they begged them not to speak in the language that they understand. But the commander replied, get this, like these guys are proud they are strong. They have conquered everyone. They have an undefeated record. And here's how he replied. What is it? Only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the people sitting on the wall 
who, like you, will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine. You. Here's the thing. This is not an idle threat. When they would set up these siege walls, oftentimes the sieges would go on for months or years. They'd run out of food. People would starve to death and find themselves doing all sorts of things they could never imagine themselves doing. Ancient history. Verse 13. Then the commander stood and called out to Hebrew. in Hebrew. Now he's calling out to the people on the wall. He says, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord, in Yahweh. That's how it is in the scripture. When he says, the Lord will surely deliver us, this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me. Come out to me. And then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. So he's saying, okay, you got two choices. You can die a horrible death or you can just surrender, open it up. You know we're going to... You know, we're going to kill you anyway. And then we'll, we'll save your lives. You'll have a comfortable life. We'll ship you off. And here's what you have to understand. Um, I have a slide of the, the kingdom of Israel here, the divided kingdom. So when Israel split right after King Solomon time, uh, a couple hundred years before this, you had 10 tribes that went to the north known as the kingdom of Israel and two tribes in the south that were the kingdom of Judah. At this point in history, in 722, the last standing city in Israel had been conquered by the Assyrians, so about 20 years before this, and they had hauled all the people, or a majority of the people, off into exile. And here was their strategy. Their strategy was a strategy of of relocation. And so what they would do is they would take the people from this country and they'd split them up into little groups and distribute them hundreds of miles away and settle them in other cities and take the people from those cities and move them into that place. Why? Because it disoriented them. It broke up all the structures. How are you going to fight back? You're not. It was a highly effective strategy. Bring confusion, bring disorientation, and we will dominate. And it's exactly what happened. They're the most powerful nation most powerful empire in the world. And uh, have any of you like gone to another country and you've been a little disoriented? It's like you got to figure out how you do stuff. I remember one time our family, we got dropped off um, on a street front in the middle of the night in France when we were traveling. We didn't speak a lick of French and everything was closed and it's raining and it's freezing cold and we're trying to figure out like, what do we do? We're, we're like crouched under, if you've ever like seen refugees or something, we felt that for just a moment, right? We're like, what do we do? Where do we go? How, how do we do this? And, and we're trying to figure it out, just waiting for morning light. And um, this really nice guy on a motorcycle comes back and sees us crouched under this ledge in, in front of a storefront, and he stops. And I've, I'd always heard the French, like, really don't like Americans. Um, this guy, he, like, tries to talk to us, and he motions, and we can't understand each other. So he leaves his motorcycle helmet, and he goes, gets a taxi for us, and comes back. We're like, wow, that's amazing. See, the French don't dislike all Americans. They're some wonderful ones. So anyway, um, (laughs) 
So that was their strategy, and they had already done it to the people of the north, and they had just came through, and they'd, and they'd defeated a lot of these fortified cities, and they would soon deport a lot of those people. That was the threat, right? And now they're saying to Jerusalem, guess what? You guys are next. You, just take the easy route. Surrender. Surrender. Now, the field commander goes on to mock Yahweh, the one true God. Here's what he says. Verse 18. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Have the gods of any nations ever delivered their lands from the, from the hand of the king of Assyria? Come on, look at all these other nations. We have an undefeated record. It was true. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepravaim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Your next door neighbors, look at them. Look at what happened to them. Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? He's mocking God, saying, your God's just the same as all the other gods. How, how can he do He's not powerful. Look at all this. We're the powerful ones. We're the powerful ones. Verse 1 of 37. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes, and he put on sackcloth, and went into the temple of the Lord. This is a sign of mourning, of grief, of distress. And then he sends his officials to consult the prophet Isaiah. And it says this in verse 5. When King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Oh, don't be afraid. <laughs> I think I'd struggle in this situation. I struggle enough when it comes to job stress, family stress. I have a really hard time. You know, if you've ever had a kid go through a medical thing, man, that's hard, isn't it? And, and I struggle enough with peace. And, and they have literally a massive army, the largest army in the world, threatening to take them out and deport them. And the message of God from Isaiah is, don't be afraid of what you've heard. Whew. I have a feeling Hezekiah felt about like we would be feeling. Okay. Uh, those words which the underlings of the king of Assyria have, listen, have blasphemed me. They haven't just come to pick a fight with you. They came and picked a fight with me. Listen, when he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country. Listen to this prophecy. Listen to this prophecy. And there I will have him cut down with the sword. See, God, what makes God so unique? Uh, hundreds of prophecies of the Messiah, many of them found in Isaiah, fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Hundreds of prophecies fulfilled before Jesus in unique, minute details. And he makes a prophecy. He's not going to destroy Jerusalem. They have an undefeated record at this point. We know this from history and archaeology. He's going to return to his own country, and then I will cut him down with the sword. Now, in the meantime, the field commander de delivers this message. He's gone back to find the king of Assyria and tells him, no, nope, they're, they're maintaining their rebellion. They're not going to surrender. We're going to have to bring the army, the full army, lay the siege. They've already blockaded the city, but we're going to 
We're going to have to bring the full army, do the sieges here. It says this, when the field commander heard that the king of Assyria had left Lachish, Lachish, he withdrew and found the king fighting against Libna. So the king's gone over to another town. Now, here's what you need to know about Lachish, and this is where the archaeology comes in. This is so cool. Lachish is the second most important city in Judah at this time in history. And when, this, when Austin um, layered, excavated Nineveh, he discovered this massive palace, and he wrote about it in his book. Um, in 1853, just a few years later, he wrote and recorded all this. He brought a, they didn't have photography yet, so he brought a like artist from the king to come along and illustrate this and illustrate all the things that they, uh, that they excavated. Now you can go see it still in the British Museum. And so um, he writes a book about expeditions and he talks about in, um, excavating this palace, the palace of Sennacherib that we're going to see on the next slide here. And when they excavated this palace, it's a massive palace, like I said, the largest ever excavated. And as they go through some of the main hallways, the main corridors, they found a gallery. And all lining the hallways, they found what are known as reliefs, which are drawings. They're almost like pictographs, right? So drawings of what happened. And here was the relief they found in the most prominent chamber or gallery in the, the huge unrivaled palace of King Sennacherib. They found a relief of the people of Lachish surrendering and being defeated before the king. And here is the inscription. You can see a little cuneiform inscription above there if you have really good eyes. And here's what it said. Sennacherib, the mighty king, before the city of Lachish, sitting on the throne of judgment. So he had set up his, um, his throne and observed as they took over and destroyed the city of Lachish. I give permission for its slaughter. So the only way, here's what you have to understand from archaeology. The only reason you know the name of Nineveh and Sennacherib is because it was written about in the Bible. And then they went looking for it and saying, I wonder where we can find it. And they dug down, and right there, they found the exact details that line up with what the Bible has said. It's amazing. You can trust. The Bible is the most <laughs> reliable source of archaeology there is. In fact, as they learn more and dig up more and more and more, what they discover is things they thought like in the early 1800s or early 1900s when, when uh, people started saying, you can't trust the Bible. No, actually, as they've discovered more and more, and then as we've discovered the, the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 50s, it's like, no, actually, the Bible is the most reliable source of history there is. And so they've dug this up. Um, in fact, here's an aerial view of Lachish. And you can go and walk on this today in modern-day Israel, and you can go up and you can see where the Assyrians laid the siege ramp. This is called the Tell, which is a giant mound of where this city is. And they've, uh, they've excavated some of it, but you can go see where the siege ramps are, where the Assyrian soldiers threw rocks and built up this giant ramp up to the city. In fact, they found something called the Taylor Prism, actually before layered. And they couldn't translate it at this point until a little later when they began to discover all this other stuff. And here's, as they discovered this, here's what they found this prism, uh, the, the uh, Taylor prism, said this about Hezekiah. We find his name. Hezekiah, the Jew, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 
of his strong cities, this matches the Bible exactly, walled forts into the countless small villages in their vicinity and conquered. In fact, it brings up the, the point that Hezekiah paid him a tribute of 30 talents of gold, which is exactly the same as we see in the book of 2 Kings. Exactly. It matches exactly. So going on, here's, here's what happens. Verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers, the letter threatening them, surrender or you're dead. Threatening all these things. Blaspheming the God of Israel. It says, then he went up to the temple of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. Oh, before I go on, before I forget, Winston, our worship pastor, sent me a really cool video because he knew we were I was talking about this story. I said, I've mentioned this story before. I learned so much. It was so cool. And so if you want to, go to our website, lifegj.org. I think it's the last slide. And uh, forward slash resources. And I've got a YouTube video link there. It's about 30 minutes long. And it, uh, lifegj.org forward slash resources. And it'll tell you all about... Um, it's like a 30-minute video on this specific thing. It's really cool. So anyway, uh, verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. And then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. I love this. Why? They were picking a fight, not with just Hezekiah. He's like, see, God? It's not, not me. This is you. Hezekiah is one of, the, one of the best kings in Judah's history. He loves God. He, he got rid of idolatry. He's called a righteous king. And God has prospered him because of that. And in just a moment, we're going to see God rescues him because of that. It says, he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are the God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heavens and the earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to all these peoples in their lands. He's, he's not telling a lie. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods. Here's what Hezekiah realizes. Only wood and stones. Only wood and stones. Fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand. You are the one true God, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. What a good prayer. This is not just for us. Yes, we want to be saved but this is for you. It's for your glory. It's for your purposes. This was the whole point of the nation of Israel, that they would be a light to the nations. And Hezekiah knows that, and he prays, God, I want that to be true, that if you save us here, all the nations around will recognize the fact that you are the one true God, not these idols, not these demons they worship. It goes on. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. Listen, here comes a prophecy. See, we talked about Isaiah prophesying about things close, things hundreds of years, a couple hundred years away, at the exile and the return of Judah, the remnant. We've heard about things of 700 years when Jesus comes, all these prophecies, and then things we're waiting for when Jesus returns at his second coming. And here's what he prophesies about the near term. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, Prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful. 
The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. King of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken against him. Virgin daughter despises and mocks you. Daughter Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. You're going to be running and we're going to be laughing at you. Who is it that you have ridiculed and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers, you have ridiculed the Lord. Then God goes on to say, hey, I know about your pride and your boastfulness and the way you think it's all you're doing. Guess what? Actually, I raised you up for my purposes. You were the tool I used to discipline Israel. And after I'm done, I'm going to punish you because of your wickedness, because you went over the top. He says this in 28, but I know where you are. (laughs) That should strike some fear in your heart. The God of the universe, I know where you are. No one's outside of the presence, the sight of God. I know where you are and when you come and go and how you rage against me. Because you rage against me and because of your insolence has reached my ears, I will put a hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will make you return by the way you came. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with a shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter the city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant, who God had made an unconditional covenant with him. One of your descendants will sit on the throne. What do we hear in Isaiah 9? Of his government, there will be no end. He will sit on the throne of his father, David. And if you've ever read the genealogies and your eyes have glazed over at the beginning of the Christmas story, why, do they, why is that all in there? Because this came true. What God said would happen, even though it was down to one descendant at one point, it happened. God preserved the line of Judah. And here's a really interesting historical fact that is verified. (laughs) Why did Sennacherib not destroy Jerusalem? He has an undefeated record. They have literally come through the, the Middle Eastern world and taken out every city that resisted them. King rebels and stops paying tribute. The punishment was horrible and horrific. They were taught a lesson. Might and peace through strength. (laughs) Why why, why did that happen? Why why do you come in and see this slide? Why did Laird come in and in the most prominent chamber of the greatest palace in history, um, he finds this relief of the people of the second most important city in Judea surrendering to him in the most prominent place. Let me ask you a question. Do you think the greatest king in the Assyrian Empire wanted a relief of the second most important city on the most prominent spot displayed in his palace or the first most important place? Hmm. (laughs) And what's really interesting in history is he talks about taking a tribute from uh, Hezekiah, but he's on, in the, in the uh, Syrian records, he's really uh, coy about the rest of what happens and the real reason. But Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us what happened. Verse 36 says this, Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 of the Assyrian camp. And when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. 
So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and he withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and he stayed there. God said he would defend the city and the God of angel armies defended the city. He took care of business. He defeated the most powerful army in the world. And the fulfillment of prophecy doesn't stop there. Check this out. One day, remember what he said? What Isaiah prophesied? I'll take him back to the land and then what will happen? I'll cut him down with the sword back in his own land. One day while he was worshiping in the temple of his God, Nisroch, his sons, Sennacherib's sons, Adremelech and Sherezer, killed him with the sword and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Ershadon, his son, succeeded him as king. Exactly what Isaiah had prophesied that God showed him would happen, happened. And back in his own city, he is killed. Now, here's the interesting thing about Nineveh and Assyria. Isaiah prophesies in chapter 10 that, that God had used them and he will punish them. He will punish this nation. Another prophet comes around a little bit later and he prophesies the absolute destruction of Nineveh and that it would be destroyed and it would lay hidden from that point on. And in 612 BC, Nineveh was destroyed unlikely the most powerful city the most powerful empire in the world was destroyed and it laid hidden for over 2400 years where shepherds grazed on it just like Nahum prophesied until Laird finally came and dig and dug it up in 1850 and it still lays in ruins they still haven't excavated all the city walls there's miles of city walls left to be excavated. And here's what I want you to take away from this. The key to experiencing peace in your own life, it's knowing the one, really knowing the one you can trust in. I'm going to invite Winston up as we close. It's knowing him. Do you know him? Do you trust him? It's your faith in him. Faith is, is literally putting your trust in something. It's what you choose to rely on. Isaiah, in chapter 26, says this about peace. He says, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. If you want to experience peace, it's rooted in your trust of him. See, here's the wonderful thing. Where we started was Isaiah 9. For, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. But this isn't any old child, right? And the government will be on his, his shoulders. Okay, he'll be a king. But this isn't any old king. He will be called, <coughs> this child will be called Wonderful Counselor. Whew, he'll be really, really wise and caring. But it doesn't stop there. He'll be called Mighty God. Who is this child? Who is this child? He'll be called Everlasting Father. The one. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who took on flesh, came into this world to live and to die for us so that we could experience peace with him and in the midst of the turmoil of life, 
he will be called Prince of Peace. Oh, it'll look different for a long time than we had in our heads. But he promises a day when the external will align with what we can experience in our hearts through trust in him right now. Are you experiencing that? The peace, he says, I leave with you. It's your birthright. It's your inheritance as my child. I hope you are. But I know for me so often I'm not. And I got to be reminded of the one whom I trust in. The one who spoke the beginning from the end. Who says, it's no sweat. I know how this is going to go. I've brought it to pass. Nothing escapes me. I love you. I care for you. That's why Peter tells us to cast all your anxiety on him. Because he cares for you. He cares for you. He's the one who told us, I will never leave you or forsake you. I know it's difficult. I know there's things you, you don't see, see the way out of. But I'm with you. My grace is with you. And you can experience peace. Paul tells us how to do this. And I want to leave us with this one verse. For some of you, this needs to be your takeaway. You need to just ponder this. You need to put it somewhere this week. It says this, do not be anxious about anything. It's hard. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Would you stand? Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes in here today. I want to pray for you, but I want to pray for all of us, but I specifically want to pray for a few of you. And so if you're in the room right now and you just have a situation where you're like, I need that peace, would you just slip your hand up for a minute? Just, just slip it up for a moment. Yeah, I see those hands. A lot of us in the room. Oh, Jesus. Father, we come to you. Our Father, God, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who have trusted in you, would you bring your peace that surpasses all understanding? Would you guard our hearts and minds? For those specifically in the room that have a situation they're dealing with, would you allow them to trust you in a profound way? And then I pray that they would experience a peace they cannot explain. In the midst of this season, in the midst of a world in turmoil, in the midst of hearts in turmoil. You are good. You are God. We love you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.